what we've been looking at, what we're going to be looking at uh, this week and next week is in a whole, you could say we're going to look at salvation. Last week we looked at the need of salvation. This week we're going to see the how of salvation, how salvation works. And uh, one thing you have to keep in mind is salvation, even though it seems as a simple concept in our minds, it could be because of our upbringing or it could be because of our Bible studies and it's maybe because of our very clear thinking or understanding of the subject that it seems very simple. But if you had to break it down, um, and especially the challenge that I had, when you have to break it down to put it in the form of a sermon, there is so much that we can talk about. There is so much material. It's not just the number of verses to support one point. There are multiple points. Salvation is a multifaceted doctrine. And um, I hope this sermon is a coherent sermon that you would be able to understand, as I had to do a lot of fine-tuning so that uh, it's applicable to us. So, as I said, we're going to look at the how of salvation this week, and next week we will look at the goal of salvation. So, when we discuss salvation and, as we saw, the need for salvation last week, we have to understand a very important term, which is, as most of you have heard, the term known as atonement. Because it is the atonement that made salvation possible. So before we dive into uh, the atonement, let's just bow down uh, in a word of prayer uh, so that God would make our minds more receptive to his word. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this wonderful day that you have blessed us with. We thank you for loving us and for sending your son to die for us. And we thank you for this opportunity where you have given us a chance to hear from your word, to understand you a little better. And we want to pray that only you would speak through your servant's mouth, that you would uh, enable your church to be receptive to the message, and that, we, that, that, um, that our sins wouldn't stand in the way of, of us understanding you a little more. And more importantly, we want to ask for forgiveness for all, all the sins that we have committed. We pray that um, you would enable us to be a little more like your son, conformed to his image as each day progresses, if your coming tarries. We thank you for all that you have done. Make us receptive to your word. This we ask in the most precious name for Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, the atonement is a critical aspect of Christian theology because it is the first and necessary precursor to salvation. <clears throat> and the atonement, as we know, it involves the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is the point at which theologically, or where theo theology is practically applied. And if you look uh, at the doctrine of God that our brothers looked at, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin, they also looked at the doctrine of Jesus Christ, what you will see is that as of now, we are focusing on the active work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And since salvation is the foundation of all the doctrines that are to follow, that is, uh, when we're, when we're going to look at, look at the doctrine of the church, it is absolutely necessary that we understand that atonement is, is clearly understood in our minds because it is based on that, uh, or our understanding of atonement, that we are able to believe what we believe in the doctrines that are to follow. So the atonement is a singular term we use to describe the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, but... As I had mentioned before, it encompasses uh, various functions. It has many effects that come from that work of Jesus Christ. And what we see is that the various doctrines covered before 
come together to form our understanding of atonement. So basically what I'm trying to say is we have to keep in mind all the other doctrines to understand atonement. And that's the beauty of systematic theology. One doctrine does not stand alone on its own. What I mean is every doctrine is connected. You need one doctrine to understand the other doctrine. Right? And so by understanding the doctrines of God, man, sin, person of Christ, we realize, as I had mentioned last week, the human need for salvation. Our salvation has to involve the making of right with God, because as we saw last week, because of Adam's sin, because of his, of his wrongdoing, because of his disobedience to God, all of mankind had that sin. That sin was imputed. So that destroyed the relationship that man had with God. And so there is a need to be made right in God's sight. And because of Adam's sin, even his, his spiritual side was destroyed. And so there is a rebirth and renewal of our spiritual nature that has to be done. Because it is through that we are able to have communion with God. And lastly, there, there has to be a development of godliness within us, which we know as the term as sanctification. It's an ongoing process till we either go to be with God or when, if he comes, when he comes back to take us to be with him. And so our understanding of these earlier doctrines will influence our interpretation of the atonement. And before we go into the atonement, we need to go through the Old Testament and the New Testament to understand certain uh, background information that we have to keep in mind before we have an idea of what the atonement is. And one of them is the nature of God. We saw how God is perfect, how he's completely holy, how sin is repulsive to him. Then we look at the status of the law. We see that God's moral and spiritual law is not just a bunch of commandments that he gave man to obey, but the law was basically God's very nature. It was his expression. And so if mankind went against any law, it was going against God himself because it was his standard. It was his expression. Thirdly, the human condition. As we saw, humans are totally depraved in the sense that they are unable to do anything to save themselves. Because of that disconnect spiritually with God, there is nothing we can do to respond to God's calling or to understand spiritual matters. Fourth point is the person of Jesus Christ. Christ is both God and human. In his incarnation, he added humanity to his pre-existing deity. And since he is completely human, he is or he represents us uh, in his death and he's able to redeem us. But in his deity, because he is God, his death is of infinite value and is sufficient to atone for all of mankind's sins. That is past, present and future. That is for those who choose to accept that payment on their behalf. And the fifth point we look at is the Old Testament sacrifices. Before Christ's death, it was necessary for sacrifices to be regularly committed on behalf of sinners, not to reform the sinner. That is, not to, it wasn't a sacrifice to change them internally, but it was a sacrifice that was done to pay for that sin at that moment. It was more of a, of a, 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 a legal need to, to atone for that sin. And we see that, especially in Isaiah 53, we see that the Messiah would perform a similar function as the Old Testament sacrifices. Because if you remember, if man committed sin, that man would bring a year-old lamb without any blemish. He would bring it to the tabernacle. And there was a symbolic transfer of 
the man's sin onto the animal, how he would lay his hand on the animal's head and symbolically the animal had the person's sin and how the animal was killed, the blood was poured on the mercy seat, etc., etc. And so you see in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah would perform a similar function and that I'm reading verse 6. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then when we fast forward and we come to the New Testament, we see the atoning nature of Jesus Christ's work on the cross is more focused upon. We see that in Jesus' words in the Gospels and we see it more in detail in Paul's writings in the epistles. And then again, when, when, when I was doing the study for the sermon, there, you won't believe the number of verses that, that, are, that I had populated on my, on, my, uh, on my notes. And I had to cancel so many because I ended up going into like page 12 or 13. And I don't want to keep you here in this when, when there's wonderful weather outside. But anyway, John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So you see, the purpose of Jesus' coming to earth was to atone for our sins. And he makes it clear that the Father was personally involved. It wasn't Jesus acting out on his own will, but the Father was involved. How the Father voluntarily willed for a solution to be offered to mankind and how the Son voluntarily came down as man to pay for that sin, to fulfill his mission. And then you see another nature of the atonement is Jesus indicated that he was the source and the giver of eternal life. As you see in John 17 verse 3, it says, Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. When you jump to the epistles, and especially you come to Paul's writings, you see that he builds upon what Jesus had spoken, and you see a much more detailed view on the atonement. And what you see in Romans 8 verse 3 is Paul identifying the reconciliation ministry of Jesus, and he, he equates Jesus' love with that of the Father, and, it's, and it reads, For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in sinful, in sinful man. And Paul maintains the primary purpose of the atoning sacrifice was propitiation, to appease God's wrath. And I'm reading Romans 3.25, and it says, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation for his, by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And the word propitiation that's used in the Greek is the same word that is used in the Greek Old Testament for the mercy seat. Because it was at the mercy seat where the problem of sin was taken care of. Because it was at the mercy seat where God would... This didn't happen, but this, it was there where he had the opportunity for his wrath to be revealed because if you remember the, the tabernacle setting in the Holy of Holies, you have the Ark of the Covenant with the ten laws or the, the commandments in it and then you have the mercy seat that's on top and then once a year at the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come in with the blood of a, sinless an, of a clean animal and basically it was all symbolic because at the Day of Atonement, the Shekinah glory of God would come down and he would look into the mercy seat and he would see his commandments, his standard. And that's when he is reminded that the people, his people that he has chosen, that the people he had saved don't live up to those standards. And that is when his wrath could be released. But as it says, 
He passed over former sins. He had divine forbearance. He gave the opportunity for people, that is, the people's representative, the high priest, to come in with blood and pour it over the mercy seat. So it was symbolic as to God not being able to see his law, his standard, because the sin has been paid for. And so that is why it's the same word that has been used for Jesus' work, that he was our propitiation, because it was at the cross that our sin was paid for, whether the, the, the price of sin was paid for, whether the problem of sin was taken care of. That was a side tangent, I apologize. When you get into the flow, get into the flow. Anyway, going into the meaning of atonement, since we've gone, we've seen quite quickly uh, a bit of relevant information, we can now get a better understanding or a better idea of atonement. And one of them is the sacrificial nature of the atonement. And it is the first component of atonement. And if you look at the Old Testament sacrificial system, the nature of Christ's death was the completion of what the Old Testament, uh, what the Old Testament teaches us, the sacrifice. And Hebrews makes the clearest identification between the work of Christ and the sacrificial system. Because in Hebrews 9, Christ is depicted as the high priest and who entered the holy place, the actual holy place, and he poured his blood as a sacrifice. It wasn't the blood of bulls and goats, but it was his own blood, the perfect blood. And how it contrasts is, is in the Old Testament, these sacrifices had to be done over and over and over. And they had multiple high priests, not at the same time, but there was one high priest after the other, after the, after the other. And the reason being, these high priests had to offer sacrifices for themselves, and for the, their own people. And the reason they had to keep doing this again and again is because this sacrifice only paid or only atoned for that sin at that time. The record of sin was still there. But the writer of Hebrews contra- contrasts Christ's high priestly ministry and what he did on the cross, where because he was perfectly human, he represented us. Because he was fully God, how his sacrifice was good once and for all. How he, had, he just had to do that sacrifice once and atone for everyone's sin. Second one is the propitiation. And you see another function of the Old Testament sacrifice was the propitiation. As I had mentioned before, it was to appease the wrath of God. And we see this in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 35. It says, And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. And you see that represented in completion on the cross. How his death was the propitiation for our sin, and it served to appease God's wrath from, against our sin. So we looked at sacrifice, we looked at propitiation, and the third one is the substitution. And when you read 1 Peter chapter 2.24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds we have been healed. It's not that Christ's death was a representation. When he died, we died. It was as though we died if we choose to accept him. It was a perfect substitution. And thus, Christ bore our sins and died instead of us so that we didn't have to die because we are not capable of bearing that punishment. There is nothing that we can do. There is no good that we can scheme up. We are unable to satisfy the infinite wrath or the infinite payment that we have to give to this infinite being. The fourth point of atonement is reconciliation. Reconciliation. How the death of Christ had 
ended the enmity that existed between God and man. And our hostility towards God is removed. There is easy access to God now. There is an opportunity for us to have a relationship with God. Because if you look at the Old Testament, people weren't free to just walk into the tabernacle or to the Holy of Holies and speak to God. That's why they had a representative, the high priest. And that too from a set clan and he had his own things to do and he had to be clean. The clothes that he had to wear were to be pure linen and he could only wear it once. But then after Christ's work on the cross, any man is free to accept the payment of his son and is free to have a relationship with God. That is the aspect of reconciliation of the atonement. And the fifth and the last point under atonement is predestination. Predestination baffles a lot of people. There's a lot of discussion on it. So if you have any questions after uh, me sharing what I have prepared, uh, I would like to direct you to the elders. You can speak to them if you have any doubts. <laughs> or you can accept what I, what I say. So predestination, um, it refers to God selecting from the human race certain people for a special relationship with himself. I'll say that again. It refers to God selecting from the human race certain people for a special relationship to himself. And if you remember from last week, we understand that man is naturally lost. He's totally depraved. He is blind. He's unable to respond to spiritual things. He cannot understand God. He cannot, let alone understand his calling for salvation. We can't do anything, basically, to save ourselves. So in order for man to respond to God, or basically sitting from where we are sitting on this side of the cross, if a man has to respond to the gospel call, God has to do some special action on our behalf. And Jesus quoted the prophet Isaiah and said that the people who heard him would hear but would not understand. But if you look at how he speaks to his disciples, it's very different. He says, blessed are you because your ears hear. Well, blessed are you because your ears hear. He says the regular people will hear the words, but they won't understand. But blessed are you because, basically saying, blessed are you because you are able to understand. So what this could mean is that his disciples were not as spiritually incapacitated as the others. That they had some form of responding to the gospel call. When Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus replied and said that the father had revealed this truth to him. It was not that Peter understood who Jesus was. It's not that he got theology or he was able to comprehend what Jesus was doing or what Jesus was saying. But Jesus says that it is the Father who revealed that to you. It was nothing that you did on your own. So it is a special action of God that made the difference between the spiritually blind and deaf audience and his disciples. And Jesus says further in John that only those that the Father draws in can come to him and that who the Father give to him, he will never drive away. And so what we say, and so what we see is that people are predestined, as Paul says, before the foundation of the world. That God has predestined certain people and sometimes it is something that, we, that baffles us, that we, we struggle with. But the more we study, the little more it gets clearer with the help of the Holy Spirit.
So those are the aspects of the atonement. And now jumping into salvation, the how of salvation. Salvation consists of three steps. And when I say three steps, I, I'm talking about the initial stages. One is the effectual calling. Second is the conversion. And third is the regeneration. And all these steps, you must remember, all these steps happen through the work of the Holy Spirit. Excuse me. It is the Holy Spirit who calls the unbeliever to salvation. Basically, it is God through the Holy Spirit calling the unbeliever to salvation. The human response to that call involves turning away from sin to faith in Christ. And God responds by regenerating the person to new life in Christ. Right? So it is God calling the unbeliever through the Holy Spirit to salvation. The human response to that call is turning away from sin, that is the conversion, in faith in Christ. And then God responds by regenerating the person to new life in Christ. So looking at effectual calling a little more. When we, th- when we listen to predestination, when we think of predestination, we sometimes think it's unfair that only some people are chosen. And we have to remember that all men are totally incapable of responding to the gospel. And so what you see is, if God predetermines that a person should be saved, then God has to step into time to intervene between the time he has decided to save a person and the time the person gets converted, if that makes any sense. The act. So what that basically is, is it is God who makes, who does the effectual calling in a person's life. And it is apparent from Scripture, if you look at uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So what you see is there is a general calling to salvation. So there is a universal invitation extended to all people. Right? It says, come to me, all who, are, who, are, who labor and all who are heavy laden. Further, if you look in Matthew twenty two fourteen, Jesus explicitly says, For many are invited, but a few are chosen. So the, so the invitation is universal, but the choosing is specific. There is, a, there is a distinction between the calling and the choosing. Those who are chosen are the objects of God's special or effectual calling. And effectual calling means that God's, God works with, with the elect in a particular and effective way that would enable them to respond in faith and repentance for certain. And some of the examples are the disciples of Jesus. If you look at Zacchaeus, if you look at Saul, if you look at Lydia, if you look at the Philippian jailer, they all had different callings. They all had uh, different stories, but they all received a calling, even though it was in different ways. And they all were converted, or they all responded the same way. They responded positively to Jesus. And it is largely the work of the Holy Spirit's illumination, enabling the recipient to understand the true meaning of the gospel. Coming to conversion, although conversion is a singular term, which basically means to have a change in the way we used to live, it actually has two separate or inseparable aspects. One is repentance and one is faith. So repentance and faith under conversion. Repentance is the negative aspect and faith is the positive aspect. Negative, as I, what I mean is, when you repent, you are turning away from your sin. But the positive aspect, that is faith, you are turning away from sin, but you are turning to Christ. 
And if you look at repentance, repentance, it has the feeling of, it means the feeling of care, it means the feeling of concern or regret. And you can see the different uses of the term in the Gospels itself. You see the remorse of Judas. How even though he went again, he, he betrayed the Son of God. The remorse of Judas was not powerful enough to overcome the destructive nature of sin. It was potent enough to make him guilty and give way to the burden. But Peter, on the other hand, even though he denied Christ three times, you see that he had a behavioral change. You see that he repented. He came back to Christ and how he was, how he was restored to fellowship. Repentance is godly sorrow for one's sin with a resolution to turn from it because of the wrong done to God and the hurt inflicted upon him. The sorrow is accompanied by a genuine desire to abandon sin. So repentance is a genuine feeling that you don't want to live the way you used to live after understanding the gospel truth. That you want to walk away from sin and you want to turn to Christ. And turning to Christ is the aspect of faith. It is the heart of the gospel. It is the vehicle that allows us to receive the grace of God. There are two meanings of the word uh, of, of faith in the New Testament. One is to accept what someone says, this, uh, uh, that is whatever statement they make. An example of that is John 1 verse 12 where it says, Yet to all who Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So that verse basically talks about how you believe the person in what they say. If, if you think about Hebrew uh, culture, someone's name represented, or they, they saw that as a person's, uh, as a person's um, how do you say it? It was virtually equivalent to the person. The person's name was his identity. And that is why uh, Jesus says what he says, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So basically faith is saying that you not only believe what he teaches, you not only believe his statements, but you also believe in him. That is what faith is. So the type of faith required in salvation is both believing the facts of a person, basically what he says or what he does, but also believing in that person. And so what we recognize as a conclusion uh, for faith is that repentance and faith are gifts from God, basically. Even though it is exercised through the human, it is basically something that God does, that, or what God enables man to do. And then you come to regeneration, how God transforms the individual believer when he gives them a new spiritual vitality or gives them a new spiritual direction to accept Christ. And regeneration is a difficult concept, but there are some points that we can look at to understand it better. So the new birth or regeneration involves something new, a whole reversal of a person's tendencies. And it involves putting to death our old self and opening up ourselves to the new ones. The new birth involves counter, uh, counteracting the effects of sin. Although regeneration introduces something new, it does not introduce something foreign to the human nature. What, what that means is, if we remember Genesis chapter 1, we see we were made in the image of God. So basically what regeneration does is, it is reintroducing us to how we were supposed to be. The new birth is not an end in itself, and we're going to look at that next week, how 
Although regeneration is instantaneous, the birth is the beginning of a new life and a growth that continues throughout one's lifetime. And we'll be looking at sanctification next week. That is, that, that is what it basically is. And then again, another important point to remember, the new birth is a supernatural occurrence. It is not something that mankind can do. So we looked at atonement. We saw how the atonement was a sacrifice, how Christ was a perfect sacrifice for us, how he appeased God's wrath against mankind by being our propitiation. We see that he was a perfect substitute, how his death was as though we died. How he reconciled our relationship with God. And we saw how we were predestined for a special relationship with him. And we looked at how salvation consists of three steps. Effectual calling, conversion, and regeneration. Then I came, after preparing this, I came to the point of uh, trying to understand what does all this mean to me? I understand all this in theory. I have gone through all these steps. I have been saved. I understand what the Bible tells me, but what does it mean? And what convicted me is us as Christians, we, we take for granted our salvation. And so we begin to slowly forget these important points. We sometimes allow ourselves to become an idol when we are supposed to focus on Jesus Christ and when we are supposed to focus on his, on his work on the cross. We are, we, were, we are never meant to forget that. That is why Sunday after Sunday, we come here and we remember important aspects of the table. That is the bread that, was, that symbolizes his body, the, 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 the wine that represents his blood. Well, I talk from personal experience, from my own failings. Because when we look at all those aspects, how much of ourselves did we see in all those points? Was there anything that we had to do? Was there any responsibility that we were given to save ourselves? Was there any intellectual aspect of it that we had to undertake on our own? There was nothing. It was all God. That was, that was the point that stuck out to me, that every point that you take, even though a human has to respond to God, our response can't be on our own merit. It cannot be anything that we do. We respond because God reaches out and he enables us to respond. And what spoke to me is we get lost in our daily struggles, in our daily issues. Not that I'm belittling anyone's issues. Everyone has their own struggles. Everyone has their own challenges. And I believe that God allows those challenges to happen to make us stronger to make us a little more mature, spiritually, especially, for us Christians. But what I find myself doing is I sometimes make myself the idol. I worship my, myself. I give in to my own desires. I give in to worshiping my own self. I enjoy practicing self-pity. I do not want to speak to God. And I try to, I try to ask myself, why? It is because we forget. We forget what God has done through His Son on the cross. If that is always our focus, how much more sweeter life would be that we would depend on the God of this universe for strength, for peace, the, 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 the being who put the sun and the moon and the stars in its place. We would rather look for friendships and trust on human beings 
who can't forecast the weather for the next day. But we find it hard to speak to the creator of this universe. And so it's a personal challenge. I, I struggle with finding applications for sermons. And it was a bigger challenge to find one for this uh, systematic theology, for a doctrine. But the thing that's, that jumped out to me was I didn't do anything in my salvation. What a privilege it is for us to have a God like that. Who would want to have a relationship with us so he did everything? He provided all the solution. But still, we backslide. We lose ourselves in ourselves. We, we do not want to spend time in him. We are busy running behind money. We are busy running behind education, behind fame, behind friends, behind people, behind food. But we find it so hard, so hard to remember what our God did through his son on the cross. That's for the Christian. For anyone who has not accepted Christ, who is here, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to crawl backwards to the Himalayas to please God. You don't have to lash yourself 100, 200 times to appease God. You don't have to read hundreds of thousands of books to understand theology before God can be happy with you. All he asks is that you accept what he did through his son. And so I pray that Christian or non-Christian, that we would focus on the cross. And luckily it doesn't end there. Jesus was, he died, he was buried and he rose again. And that is why we have the faith. That's, that's why we have our hope that he's coming back one day. And so we need to spend more time. We need to take an active effort in focusing our lives on Jesus Christ. Not just understanding this in theory and coming and uh, partaking of the bread and wine because everyone else does it, but to actually understand what it meant for God to send his son to die for our sins. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful day that you have blessed us with. We thank you, as always, for the gift of your Son and what he did on the cross. Dear Lord, I hope we realize that we sinful human beings were, who were your enemies, who deserved your rightful punishment, who deserved to be eternally separated from you because of the sin in us. Help us to remember that you reached out you sent your son. He stepped into time. He lived a perfect life. He obeyed your will. He did all that needed to be done. And finally, he bore the humiliating death on the cross. And for who? For people like us. And so we pray that you would always help us to remember this. That you would enable us to focus on your son in whatever we do. We are sinful human beings. We are trapped in this sinful body. And so we want to ask for forgiveness for our sins and we want to pray that we would have your strength in the face of sin to walk away. To turn aside and to look at the cross for strength because what your son achieved on the cross cannot be put in words, Heavenly Father. And so we pray that with, hum with humility we would come to the throne of grace for your help, for your strength, for your wisdom, and that we would always focus on you. Thank you for all that you have done. 
And we pray that you would bless your family. This we ask in the most precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.